The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So this last week, I encouraged everybody to think about the most confusing, difficult, challenging sermons you ever heard. And whatever sermons were sitting in your number one, two, and three spot, I wanted you to kind of mentally move them down to like four, five, and six so that we could clear out a little bit of room at the top. And the reason is because in our verse-by-verse study, the Gospel of John, we have now come to chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. This section is a part of what is referred to as Jesus' discourse on the bread of life. The entire discourse spans 50 verses, and it has one essential truth that it is trying to convey. That is, Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. Now, that one truth is also elaborated upon from multiple different angles. That is, we saw the work of God as it relates to Jesus being the bread of life. And then last week, we began the will of God as it relates to Jesus being the bread of life. And the particular text that we're in can be very confusing because it has a difficult saying of Jesus as it pertains to the will of God, specifically focused on God's sovereign activity within election, predestination, and free will. In other words, if you were to put together some of the most confusing and debated topics of Christianity, they're all pretty much sitting in this one particular text. To avoid a complete brain meltdown, we are breaking the text down into smaller, more digestible chunks. So last week, I gave an overview of the will of God, and I also spent just a moment talking about how God is sovereign and how that plays into salvation. I'm going to recap the basics of those in just a moment. But today, we tackle the second part of this equation, and that is election, predestination, and free will, and how those also relate to the conversation of salvation. As many of you might know, these topics can be very confusing, and they can also be very divisive. Those of you who know anything about the topics will also know that a lot of people are very passionate about their views, and they love, absolutely love, to argue their views with Scripture. So because of the divisiveness and because of the confusion surrounding the topic, this is a particular topic of which many churches have chosen to avoid the conversation altogether, especially within morning worship services. So you might have been a part of a Baptist church or Methodist church, a Lutheran church, non-denominational church, Catholic church, your entire life, and you might have never heard an actual message specifically relating to these topics. But I think that has only led to confusion. If we can't talk about biblical concepts in church, where can we talk about it? Not sure if you know this or not, but the internet is not the most reliable source for wisdom and truth. And understanding. There's a lot of stuff that circulates out there that is not specifically what Scripture says. So here is my goal this morning, and here are a couple of guiding thoughts as we work our way in. My goal, my goal, very simple goal, here's my goal, is to provide a basic understanding of key biblical terms so that you will understand the arguments as well as be able to accurately interpret the Scripture. That's my goal. My goal is not to solve 2,000 years of Christian debate in the next 30 minutes. 
My goal is not to argue with people after the service. My goal is simply to provide a basic understanding of key biblical terms so that you will know the arguments as well as you can accurately interpret the Scripture. Now, for that to take place, I've got a couple of guiding principles in mind here. Um, first, as the German theologian Meldanius so eloquently said, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. Any debate that is surrounding these terms does not change the gospel message. It does not change the Great Commission. It does not change the will of God. God is still God, and heaven is still real, and the gospel still saves, regardless of what you and I might choose to believe about these terms. So that being said, we have to walk into this with an understanding that these are conversations that Christians have, Christians have to better understand the redemptive process of God. You and I might disagree on these terms. And we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ, we can still love each other, and we can still serve together. So just kind of keep that idea in mind. We need to keep love and liberty at the forefront of our mind as we go through. Second, studying theology should always lead to humility, not pride. Theology is the study of God. It's a study of his divine nature. It's in theology that we see his character and his attributes and his desire and his perspective. So when our eyes are fixed on him, it should only produce humility in us. If we walk away from this study with theological terms and we now look down upon less enlightened believers, something went dramatically wrong in this study. Number three, the goal is not to prove a point. The goal is to know God. Proving a point in this is a fool's errand. If while making your case, you feed pride and you lose a brother and you dishonor God, you still lose. So at the end of the day, it's not to prove a point. At the end of the day, the goal is to know God. And a part of knowing God is knowing his word. So when these terms come up in his word, we need to know what the terms mean. We need to understand them within context. And the last part is just specifically for me, and that is, please extend grace to me as I try to accurately portray these concepts. I'm going to tell you from the very beginning, I do not have a place of complete clarity without any type of concern in my heart related to how these terms work together. I've been studying these terms for well over 25 years. I have read thousands upon thousands of pages specifically related to these terms. There are people who will spend their entire life's work just trying to study these concepts and write about them in a way that the church understands. So when I say from the very beginning, please give grace in this, it is I'm trying to bring together 25 years of study, thousands of pages of writing, and put it into the next 30 minutes in a way that hopefully people walk away with a basic understanding of some key biblical terms and they can rightly divide the word of truth. So this morning, consider it to almost be a seminary class of which you did not have to pay $40,000 and spend four years in education upon. Okay? So all of those guiding thoughts out there, I invite you to turn with me again in your Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. John 6, 35 through 40. 
I'm sharing the second part of the message we began this last week entitled, The Will of God. Let's have a word of prayer, and then let's just kind of begin and work our way through. Heavenly Father, we are asking once again for your spirit to guide us into all truth. We need you, Lord. We need you week after week, but there's moments in which the difficulty of the topic makes it even more imperative that you guide us through truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In verse 35, Jesus clearly tells people he is the bread of life. In verse 36, he clearly tells this crowd that they did not actually believe in him. In verse 37, he tells the crowd who will believe in him. Here's his statement. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Those who come are those he gives. And those he gives are those who believe. Verses 35 and 37. Now, to understand his statement, all that the Father gives me will come to me, we need to understand a little bit about God's sovereign will as it pertains to salvation. So last week, that's what we focused on. We just talked about the will of God and how it is explained within Scripture. Here it is very quickly again. If you want further explanation on this, go back and watch last week's message. So the Bible speaks of God's predetermined plan, which he ordained from the beginning of time. The Bible speaks of God's commands or his will that are revealed in the Bible. And the Bible speaks of God's guidance or his will for individual people. If you were to bring those together, all the ideas together, simplify them a bit, it is part of God's will is hidden and you only know it after it happens. Part of God's will is revealed and you can know it through scripture. And then part of God's will is individual and you discover it when you live within the parameters of scripture, applying biblical wisdom and walking in right relationship with God. Salvation, as I shared last week, pertains to the first category. Based upon Ephesians chapter 1, Salvation is a part of God's predetermined plan that was established before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 says, just as he chose us in him, and here's your time stamp, before the foundation of the world. Verse 11, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Okay, predestined, planned beforehand. He's working things after the counsel of his will. So God, his will was set in eternity past. It cannot be changed. It cannot be thwarted. And God's will includes our salvation. When someone is saved, it simply means they have entered into God's predetermined plan for them. So when verses 37 and 39 say, all that the Father gives me will come to me, the reason there is complete confidence is because the sovereign God who is completely in control is fulfilling his sovereign plan. He is drawing those to himself. When verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, it is pointing out that no one can skirt around and no one can override God's plan. When verse 65 says, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father, it means that God is acting upon his sovereign prerogative as God. When scripture speaks of believers being appointed to eternal life, 
called according to his purpose, chosen before the foundation of the world, chosen from the beginning. It's simply describing how we entered into the unfathomable grace of God in salvation. That is, we were called by him. We were drawn by him. We were appointed by him. We were chosen by him. As a result, all praise, all glory, all honor go to God alone. It's completely about him. So there are two biblical terms that Scripture uses to describe God choosing us and God calling us. Those two terms are predestination and election. And let me reiterate, these are biblical terms. I put them in your notes so that you could go back and study these for yourself. So I'm going to quickly define how each of these work together. Then I'm going to pull them apart to give a quick definition, and then we're going to bring them right back together again for salvation. So here's how they work together. This is in your notes. Predestination is the general term for God ordaining something to take place. Election is the specific term for God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So let me say that again. Predestination is the general term for God ordaining something to take place. Election is the specific term for God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. To say it differently, predestination is the broader category of which election is a smaller subset. In other words, there are other things that God is also predestined to happen apart from just our salvation. So our salvation is a part of predestination. It's a smaller subset. Now, the Greek word for predestination, this is in your notes, means to predetermine, to decide beforehand, to foreordain, or to appoint beforehand. That's what the term means doesn't matter what side of the argument people might be on. That's what the term means. Now, this term is found six times in your New Testament. The question now becomes, what did God predetermine to happen beforehand? Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, tells us that God predetermined that certain individuals would be conformed to the image of his Son, that they would be drawn in, and that is they would be called, that they would be justified, that they would be glorified. Essentially, God predetermined that certain individuals would be saved. Now, listen to these two verses that specifically talk about salvation, specifically talk about that word predetermined or predestination. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us. He determined beforehand. He foreordained ahead of time that we would be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And listen to the context. In accordance with his pleasure and his will. That's why we had to spend time dealing with God's will. All of this is coming in under God's will. Here's the second one. Ephesians 1.11. In him... We were also chosen. Now, that word chosen is where we get the word elect. We were chosen having been, here it is, predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the pleasure of his will. 
Okay, so that's, that's just basic scripture. We have been predestined for salvation according to God's pleasure, according to God's purpose, according to God's will. That's simply what the scripture says. So that is one word. Here's the second of those words. The Greek word for election or elect, it means to pick out, to choose, to select for oneself out of many. That's the basic definition of the biblical word. Now, this election is understood to be unconditional based on Romans 9, 16. That means it depends upon nothing other than God's choice. It is not based upon our forethought faith. It is not based upon any good works that would come beforehand. Based on Romans chapter 9, it is simply a part of God's personal choice. So this word is found 25 times Within your, path, within your Bible. I've put some of those references there for you. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Romans 8, Ephesians 1, right on down the line. So let's bring both of those words together. God has a predetermined plan to unconditionally elect some people for salvation. Now it is usually at this point that somebody says, what about my free will? If God has predetermined that some people will receive salvation, are you telling me that my salvation is not my choice? Well, let me just say that is an incredibly important question that everyone needs to wrestle with. I don't want to discourage people from asking that question. We need to ask the question, but we also need to look to Scripture for the answer. So, if there is to be any clarity about this particular concept, it's going to be found at the intersection of an answer for these three questions. Here's the questions. Does Scripture say we are saved by free will? What is your definition of free will? And in what context are you using free will? So let's break down these questions as clearly as we can. Does Scripture say we are saved by free will? Let's see what the Word has to say. If you would like, turn over several uh, chapters to John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John 1, 12 and 13. John is talking about those who receive Jesus Christ and have become children of God. Here's what it says in verse number 12. But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. Now, the context is clearly about salvation. It's clearly about those who have become children of God. Now, the question is, how did they become children of God? Verse 13, the following verse tells you. Who were born, that's the idea of born again that he's going to get into more, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, listen, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's saying they've not become children of God based on man's will. They have become children of God based on God's will. Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul discusses God choosing people for salvation. And in verse 16, he says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, 
Your salvation is not dependent upon you willing it to happen, you wanting it to happen. It's not dependent upon you running, you working for it to happen. It is dependent upon the mercy of God. He's saying it is not about the man, one who wills it. It's not about the one who runs. It's about God who has mercy. So in both texts, the Bible states we are not saved by the will of man. We are saved by the will of God. So let's keep going. What is your definition of free will? A popular view of free will is free will is the ability to choose for ourselves in such a way that we can be held responsible for our choices. If our choices are not our own, then we are simply robots or we are puppets of which we cannot be held accountable for our actions. That is a popular view of free will. Well, I want to try my best to give a biblical understanding of freedom. Did you hear how I shifted that? Because if you're going through Scripture looking for free will, you're going to be looking for a long time. So let's just talk about freedom before we even get into the will. Freedom is the ability to choose what is right. True freedom is when we're liberated from preferring what is infinitely less preferable than God. True freedom is when we are liberated from choosing what will ultimately lead to our destruction. So a drug addict may say, I am free to do whatever I want. It's my body, it's my choice, it's my right. But if his addiction prohibits him from choosing what is right, he's not actually free. He's only free to keep on sinning. In a similar sense... An unredeemed person may say, I am free to choose God. It is my life. It is my right. But if a sin nature prohibits someone from wanting, let alone choosing God, he's not actually free. He's only free to keep on sinning. Prior to Christ, the Bible says we are spiritually dead, and it says that we are spiritually deceived. Dead people do not act. Deceived people do not believe. So the question becomes, how could anyone ever be free? If freedom is the ability to choose what is right, how can you be free? Jesus. That's it. This, this is what Scripture says. John eight thirty six. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. True freedom comes in Christ. John 8, 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Romans 6, 17 and 18, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart and have become slaves of righteousness. Here's what those are saying. You once were enslaved to sin and free only to sin. Now you've been enslaved to God and you are free to walk in righteousness. You see how scripture changes the term freedom from prior to Christ to after Christ. So now our third question. In what context are you using free will? If you're saying God gives humans the opportunity to make choices that genuinely affect their destiny, then yes, humans have free will. 
Our world's current messed up state is directly linked to choices that Adam and Eve made back in a perfect environment within the Garden of Eden. But the moment sin enters the equation, we are now constrained by our nature. Here's what I mean. A man may choose to walk across a bridge or not walk across a bridge. That's his choice. He is not free to fly across the bridge. His choice is held back by his nature. Prior to Christ, a person may choose to sin because that is in keeping with his sin nature. That individual cannot choose to make himself righteous or to draw near to God because his nature prevents him from inclining himself to God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As well as Romans 3.11, there are no one, none who seek after God. In other words, everyone has sinned and in that sinful state, no one seeks after God. We are limited by that sin nature. But with Jesus, a person may choose to live righteously because it's now in keeping with his new nature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Romans 6, 18. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Our freedom is is determined by our nature. So the context of free will is extremely important in this conversation. We can't just use it in a broad sense, a general sense, and say, well, what about free will? Because the issue is, what context are you talking about freedom? Because free will, as many would define it, only exists in certain contexts. Prior to Christ, we had the free will to keep on sinning. After Christ, you have a free opportunity to walk in righteousness. But if you're saying that prior to Christ, I have a freedom to not only sin, but I have a freedom to choose God, Scripture would tell us in John 1 and in Romans 9, that's not the case. Now, does this understanding of freedom mitigate accountability? Not a bit. All have sinned. Romans 3.23. All are worthy of eternal punishment. Romans 6.23. God would be perfectly just in sending every single person to hell. He would be perfectly just in doing that. No one deserves to be saved, but God, for reasons only he fully understands, chose to save some by giving them mercy and grace instead of punishment and justice that they deserved. Somebody might say, it's not fair. God has to do the same thing for everyone, otherwise it's not fair. Well, first, any possibility of fairness went out the door in the Garden of Eden. The moment sin enters the equation, nothing is fair. It's not fair that some people live in luxury and others don't even have enough to eat. It's not fair that some people have five gifts and somebody else can't even find one. It's not fair some people have a full head of hair. Amen? Listen, fairness is gone. So let's just let's get away from fairness. Best case, we can talk about justice. And we really don't want to get into justice. 
So first, all possibility of fairness went out the door in the garden. But second, God doesn't answer to us. And if you're thinking he should, you've missed the first part we covered on his sovereignty. He is completely God. All-powerful, all-controlling. He acts under the auspices of his own authority. He doesn't ask, can he do something? He doesn't set up a committee. He simply acts because he is God. And a lot of people don't like that part of his character. They want him in control when they feel out of control. They don't want him in control when he is acting as God. So just think about it from a human perspective for a moment. If you were to choose to give $100 to five people out of a group of 10, have you now been unfair to the other five? No. It's your money. It's your choice. You didn't owe anyone $100. You simply chose to be gracious to five. In a similar sense, if God chooses to give salvation to five out of a group of ten, is he being unfair to the other five? No. Because according to Scripture, we were made by God and we were made for God. We are his creation. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. So if he chooses to extend grace to five, that is his divine prerogative as God. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul argued for over in Romans 9. Does God not have the right to do with his own creation as he sees fit? Does the clay look back up at the potter and say, you can't do that to me? That's exactly what he argued. And he anticipated that people would get upset Because he even says, what right do we have to turn back to the sovereign God and say, you can't do this to me? Either he's sovereign or he's not sovereign. So any arguments that are made against God's choice are going to be arguments based on pride. I deserve salvation. On deception, my sin's not that bad are on a false sense of fairness. I think I understand fairness more than God. All three arguments are man-centered, and all three arguments are flawed. R.C. Sproul probably gave one of the most concise statements that's helped me over the years. The the elect get grace. The non-elect get justice. No one gets injustice. Let that one sink in. It's not an issue of the justice of God. It's a part of his divine prerogative. Now let's bring the whole conversation back around. Some people are so uncomfortable with this right now. You're squirming in your seats. Just let's, let's finish it back around. If you're asking, do people have the free will to choose God in salvation? The biblical answer is going to be no. The weight of Scripture informs us. No one seeks after God in their sinful state. Our nature determines the context of our freedom. 
Spiritually dead people do not act. Spiritually deceived people do not believe. Unless the Father draws a person, he cannot come. Unless the Father calls, chooses, elects a person, he cannot come. We are saved not by the will of man. We are saved by the will of God. Jesus even said, you did not choose me. I chose you. So scripture is very clear in this. If you're asking, do people have the freedom to make choices to obey or not obey, to be held accountable for their actions? The answer is absolutely yes. Not only do we have the freedom to choose, but we have the responsibility to choose wisely. That's a part of what the book of Proverbs is all about. It's about making the wise choice, the wise decision. So let's bring those ideas together in the context of salvation. God draws us to himself. He grants us repentance. He chooses us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he even gives us the ability to believe. And yet, listen to this. This is, this is where those who lean more towards a free will side, listen to this. Scripture still commands sinners to repent. That's turn from your sin and turn to God. It commands sinners to believe. That is, forsake your lies and embrace his truth. It commands sinners to come. That is, receive God's gift of eternal life. It commands sinners to trust. That is, fully rely upon Christ's work. It commands sinners to obey. That is, walk in accordance with God's plan. Each of those words involve a volitional response to the grace of God. What I mean by that is at some point after God turns the light on, he now says, come. At some point, when the deception has been cleared away, he says, believe. And in that moment, that is a volitional response. It requires a change of the will. So somebody might say, Paul, how in the world can you have a completely sovereign God and at the same time a volitional response, human responsibility? How can both of those come together? Well, let me just say it like this. In the mind of God, it makes perfect sense. This is, this is what the Bible refers to as biblical antinomy. And that is when there are two truths that are equally stated, that they are equally true, and yet they seem to contradict each other. Did you see it in the passage? It is all that the Father gives will come to me. Gives is the sovereignty side. Will come is that human responsibility side. Jesus even comes through and he says, those who believe in me, that, that's on the other side. At some point, there is a belief that is now being exercised. This, these concepts, although they might be difficult to understand, are both set equally within Scripture. And we are called to accept them by faith and trusting in God. So, in that moment, whatever that moment looks like, when God has done everything to draw a person, to elect a person, to bring them in, to, to help them understand, and in that moment when a person repents of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, at that intersection, one who was 
a sin-stained sinner, hopeless for eternity apart from Christ, gloriously enters into the righteousness of Christ, and they are eternally identified as the elect. Do you remember what I said in the beginning? The part of God's will that is predetermined, it cannot be known until after it happens. It's not that we have been told, go find the elect. You won't know who the elect are. We've been told to preach the gospel. And as we preach the gospel and people come to faith in Christ, they are now identified within that elect. So as we close, let's bring these thoughts together. God predestines and elects us for salvation. We respond to his grace by repenting of our sin, by placing faith in Christ. It may appear that these two ideas are contradictory. They are not contradictory in the mind of God. When one church member asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled the two, he said, I never try to reconcile friends. In the mind of God, they are completely reconciled. Number two, God's sovereignty and salvation does not negate the believer's responsibility to evangelize the lost. I put all these passages, I believe, in your notes. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Acts 8, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1, over and over again. Preach the gospel, share the gospel, preach the gospel. The issue is you're either fishing for men or you're walking in disobedience. His election has nothing to do with whether or not we obey his command to evangelize the lost. Number three, God's sovereignty over salvation does not change the gospel that we preach. We have never been told in Scripture, go to all the world and preach election to every creature. Go to all the world and preach predestination to every creature. That is not what Scripture says. Jesus said, preach the gospel to every creature. The gospel has not been changed. The only thing we're talking about is what believers might discuss on the other side of salvation, looking back and saying, how did we get in on this unfathomable grace of God? That's what we've been discussing today. The gospel is still the gospel. Simply this. Humanity was created for relationship with God. Our sins separated us from that relationship. There was nothing that we could ever do to make things right ourselves. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sin. He rose from the grave on the third day that we might have eternal life. And he offers eternal life to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel has not changed at all. That's what we preach. So somebody might say, but if the Father doesn't call me, I can't come. Yes, but if you come, it's because he has called you. Somebody might say, but how do I know he will accept me? Because Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. 
Somebody might say, how do I know that he'll keep me? Because I've been in bad relationships and they broke up before. Jesus said, all that he has given me, I lose nothing. You are secure within the arms of Christ. A part of our election is this freedom of, it's not about, did I pray just right? Did I hold my mouth just right? Did I pray the prayer at the right time? It's not about that. It's the fact that he has called us to himself. A plan that happened before you drew your first breath. He has been calling and drawing. And as a result of that, there is freedom now to be who he's called us to be in Christ. Not trying to live up to a religious set of expectations because he died for us. even while we were yet sinners. It's not that he's trying to clean us up before he brings us in. It's the fact that his grace is so unfathomable that he drew us in in the midst of our rebellion and said, this has nothing to do with you or your faith or your ability or whether or not you're even likable. It has everything to do with my glory. So one day in eternity, no one can say, I figured God out. I came myself, but rather everyone drops in humility at the feet of Jesus and said, he's worthy, he's worthy, he's worthy, he alone is God. That is what election needs to do for us. If it doesn't breed humility in the hearts of people, we missed it. So somebody might say, Paul, what do I do with it? I want to know more. All I can say is, come talk to me at my table right after the service. If you want to know how God can radically change your life, I'd love to share with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you that your plans are bigger than our plans. So, Lord, may our hearts not ever be moved to pride. But anytime we get to one of these words, may it immediately infuse humility and gratefulness and thankfulness. God, we love you today, and we thank you for the privilege of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?